stories that are kind of surround him. So let's uh, focus on that. And I wanted to, for us to share bread and wine, also with Noel West Bread, um, this morning, which uh, as a symbol, really, and as a, as a symbol of what these stories are about. So I'm thinking about place and what this place is, this table, and as we gather around it, how that makes a place and what that place symbolizes. And this story, uh, these stories, I think, together speak into what that place is about. So let me um, start by, you, you may have heard of the idea of the, the other. You know, if you mix with um, some kinds of people, they talk about the other, those who are different from ourselves. And the idea that you can, the idea of othering people is that you make them different. You, know, you push them away and you emphasize how they're different from me. And one writer who's written a lot about that is a guy called Miroslav Volf, who's He's a a Croatian, now living in the States, and wrote a book called Exclusion and Embrace. And that was uh, trying to grapple with the genocide that happened in the ex-Yugoslav countries, in his own country, to his own people. And um, he he writes a profound theology of othering, how we reject people, how we exclude people, and the Christian response to that, that to be a radical embrace of those who are different from ourselves which is what I want to focus on really this morning through these stories. And he writes this. uh, I'll read it slowly. He he writes in the the recent war in former Yugoslavia has increased the the already oversized vocabulary of evil with the term ethnic cleansing, one that we became very familiar with back in the 90s. Ethnic otherness is filth that must be washed away from the ethnic body. Pollution that threatens the ecology of the ethnic space. It's a bit kind of heavy language for Sunday morning, but hang in there. The others will be rounded up into concentration camps, killed and shoved into mass graves or driven out. Monuments of their culture and religious identity will be destroyed. Inscriptions of their collective memories erased. The places of habitation will be plundered and then burned and bulldozed. For those driven out, no return will be possible. The land will belong exclusively to those who have driven the others out, out of their collective construction of themselves as well as out of the land. People of pure blood and pure culture will live in a land that has been cleansed of others. A company of political, military, and academic janitors of the ethnic household will employ their communication, material, and intellectual mops and hoses and scrapers to re-sanitize the ethnic self and rearrange its proper space. The result, a world without the other. The price? Rivers of blood and tears. The gain, except for the bulging pocketbooks of warlords and war profiteers, only losses on all sides. That's very sobering, isn't it? And Miroslav Volf goes on to argue that this process of ethnic cleansing starts when we don't talk to and embrace the person who's next door to us, who's different. <clears throat> That's his argument. And I think... Um, most often, my observation about myself, as much as uh, society, is that our tendency is to reject and distance those 
that are different from ourselves, to reject the other through various kinds of ways and mechanisms. And so that what happens in society and in our city, uh, in our neighbourhood, is that these stories and narratives, these ways of talking, these discourses grow up about other people, people who are different from us, no-Westers, them and us, insiders and outsiders. And they they just become widely accepted. They're unchallenged. They become the normal way of talking, uh, the way that things happen around here. And they have their own kind of images. They have their own, there's a kind of language that often we don't necessarily recognize that, go, that goes with it. It just becomes a part of what we hear and read. And it's things like a plague of immigration. You know, the, the people who um, breed like rabbits. There's all kinds of ways of talking about people that make them seem different from us and distant and not the right kind of people. <clears throat> and that happens through daily uh, conversation, and um, a lot of it comes down to what well, you've heard of, um, I guess, particularly in our, our areas, the language of chavs, you know, which is um, people are chavy and all that kind of stuff. Fantastic book came out a year or two ago called Chavs, The Demonization of the White Working Class. If you haven't read it, particularly if you're in your 50s like I am, Brilliant book to read because it narrates really, really well what happened through the Thatcher era and how the, the, the working class were demonized. And so I think very, very helpful kind of um, reading along this line here. By the way, you're free to interrupt and, uh, and, and ask a question. I was thinking of bringing my other, other stool along this morning so you could come and do that, but... Um, a guy called um, Owen Jones. Owen Jones. It's quite an easy title to remember, isn't it? Chavs, the demonization of the white working class. And we've heard a lot of this language on the news, and it's actually risen right to the surface around the sponges debate, you know, these ideas of sponges, and, and how that label and how that kind of labeling is a way of saying those people aren't proper. You know, they're not proper people. They're, they're, um, they're marginalized. It's a way of because, of course, we never call ourselves sponges. Now, these, we, what happened in our bread cafe, um, we started making bread on Thursday mornings. We, we thought, well, come along at 8 o'clock and make some bread. So we did that the first week. Um, the second week, we wanted to make a bit more, so we thought we'd turn up at half past 7. I got there at half past 7 so that we could make more bread. And the other guys had turned up at 6 o'clock. To, and so when I got there, um, most half the dough had already been made. And these were people, the, the people who turned up at 6 o'clock were people who hadn't been in work for 30 years or more. Um, one, one woman who was severely obese and got diabetes and all kinds of complications, and every time she comes to make bread, it takes her a day and a half to recover. And she was there at 6 o'clock in the morning. Her daughter, her, she, her daughter came along one day um, because she was ill off college, so she came to make bread, which is not a very good way of um, coping with illness. <laughs> <laughs> but she so enjoyed it, she skived from college for the following two, morning, two Thursday uh, mornings until we told her we thought she should go back. Actually, it wasn't a very good idea. And so there's, there's these people turned up with chronic illnesses who really find it difficult to cope with life, and they were turning up an hour and a half before I got there. It was profound, not, and it breaks the sponging. You know, it, it's a lot more complex than that, isn't it? And one, one um, writer who I very much like called David Sibley, he says this, He said, exclusionary discourses draws particularly on color, disease, animals, sexuality, and nature 
but they all come back to the idea of dirt as the signifier of imperfection and inferiority. The reference point being white, often male, physically and mentally able person. Society, in other words, is arranged around inclusion and exclusion, and those who do the arranging are the included ones. And so what he is saying there, he's saying that we have this language which is, when you boil it down to its barest kind of um, essence, is, is the language of dirt. And that um, therefore the pure white male is the ideal, and, uh, and society is arranged around the ideal of the pure white male. You know, that, and that's how things work. And that the exclusionary language wants to distance those who are not like that um, and put them into the margins. And you see that language is absolutely soaked through media, through paper, papers, radio, and TV. And if you start to look at with the, the language of dirt, which is often in our, our culture around sexuality and improper kind of sexuality, which is why those debates rage so much within the church as well, you find that that's very powerful. And so I started to just, uh, I guess, notice this more and more <clears throat> just through, peop- through just day-to-day conversations. I was talking with one friend who had just uh, come back from the States, and he was saying he was staying in the suburbs of a large city in the States, and a bus turned up one morning to pick some people up who were just uh, around on the streets there. He asked the friend he was staying with what, what they were doing, and he said, oh, those are um, kind of tramps. Uh, they shouldn't be out here uh, in the suburbs. So the police have a policy, just pick them up, take them back to the, um, the ghetto areas of the city, which are the proper areas for them. So that was a a simple illustration of ethnic cleansing in, um, in a city in the United States, which is just the common, common sense. Let's put those people where they belong. Um, this isn't the right place for them. And that's often how suburbs are constructed. Um, we have a, fr- a friend who uh, caught a bus, was waiting for a bus one night in Knoll West, and uh, she was offered by a couple of youth uh, some of their chips, uh, it was about 11 o'clock, and she said, oh, no, thanks, I've just eaten, but thank you ever so much anyway. And when the bus came along, uh, she got on, and the, the, these young lads were about to get on, and the bus driver said, you can't come on here with food. And so a fight broke out. They threw their chips all over the bus. The police were called, and, you know, it's a kind of scene you can imagine. A couple of stops down towards the city centre, a man in a suit got on with a Chinese takeaway, completely unchallenged. And uh, my, my friends... Um, my friend's response was, I, sh- I should have got off the bus with those young men. You know. But it, it's, it's a narrative, isn't it? It's a discourse, and it's a discourse of dirt. You know, you guys don't belong on this bus. You can't bring your stuff in here. And, uh, and it's discriminatory, um, and it's powerful. There's a youth pastor in Birmingham I was just uh, chatting to a while ago, and he had a, a bunch of 20 young people from his church. They'd gone down to visit the bull ring, and they wanted to stop for a, a bit of lunch in the ball ring, so they um, sat down in one of the public spaces. And he said three times within 20 minutes they were approached by police and security guards because some of them had their hoods up and told to move on. You know, young people, youth, don't belong here. The, the shop, if you're not shopping, then please move on. And, uh, and that's another example of the way you get this kind of cleansing. You know, you're not the right kind of people. This is the wrong place. You're out of place. And so there's a powerful kind of sense to cleanse. I've been doing some walking around the city called Exploring Spiritual Landscapes and uh, a little project through the autumn, just walking across parts of the city. In fact, a couple couple of walks started here and looking at our city through this kind of lens. 
and I, we're walking past a tea van down on, by the river, and there was a bloke down there who, who was born in Noel West. He'd escaped by joining the army, made something of his life, and his comment was, oh yeah, Noel Westers, they're all scum, aren't they? He said, scum floats the surface, go to Noel West, that's where you'll find it. And he was vitriolic about Noel West. <clears throat> and uh, it's interesting, the language of scum, go back to the language of dirt, you, can, you hear that all the time. So lots and lots of stories that are around that talk about the way that our city is arranged and how we as people, we all participate in this. Yeah, we, are, we are caught up in this arrangement of, of the place, if you like. Are you with me so far? Um, <clears throat> and so I think what, what Luke is doing in these stories of, the, of um, Zacchaeus, uh, the rich young ruler, is he's employing this language of exclusion and exclusion. We often think, don't we, that Luke is a gospel, that at the heart of Luke is this passion for those who are poor. And I agree with that, but I think Luke's understanding of those who are poor is that it's about those who are excluded. And you notice that some of Luke's excluded people are actually very wealthy. They're wealthy, powerful people. They are tax collectors, and they're very important for Luke's story, uh, the wealthy, powerful tax collectors. But they are marginalized. They're radically marginalized. You know, they're people who are radically excluded. And so Luke's poor, and not just the physically poor. Um, Luke's poor is kind of more fundamental than that. It's a, it's a social, relational, cultural exclusion. People who are pushed right to the margins of normal society. And that's what I think Luke is talking about. And so what happens with this Zacchaeus is you've got a, the language that is employed in the story is the language of exclusion. You've got, a, he's named as a tax collector. He's contemptible. He is scum. Uh, he's trash. He was short. Uh, so his whole physical being was, uh, made him um, you know, look like somebody who was excluded. He was at the back of the crowd. So when you read the story spatially, and when you read Luke's stories, you often find Luke uses this kind of sense of space. He positions people phys physically. So if they're at the back, you know, they're outside, they're at the back of something. So he was at the back of the crowd. Um, he had to climb a tree, which uh, if, if anybody, if any bloke over 30 is probably climbing a tree, we know it usually ends in disaster. You can see lots of examples on YouTube. It's utterly humiliating. Um, just look it up when you get home. Bloke climbing tree on YouTube. Um, so he was. So what Luke's trying to say is this bloke is an out, he's an outsider. He's marginalised in every sense. You know, that's who he is. Now the interesting thing I think about this little string of stories that we didn't have time to read all of. But if you read chapter 18 and 19, you'll find that there are six people that Luke talks about. Six six stories, and five of them are excluded people. You've got the judge and the widow. So the, the widow who is outside, and she can't get justice. That's story number one. Then you get uh, children uh, who want to come to Jesus, but they're excluded from his presence. You get the, the other um, unrighteous uh, man who is in the temple, and, uh, and you get the, the righteous man who's by the altar, and the righteous man can't come close uh, to the altar, so he's physically and spatially excluded. And then you get the blind beggar who's at the back of the crowd, and who wants to get to Jesus and can't get to Jesus. And then you get Zacchaeus, who's also at the back of the crowd. So you get, you get five people who are all excluded. Um, but Jesus tells their stories uh, in ways that break, break down the social barriers and the powers that keep them on the outside. 
So with the widow, she finds justice. Eventually she gets justice. And in its little comment at the end, God, God's kingdom is a kingdom of justice and justice will come. The children, Jesus said, bring the children to me because the kingdom of God belongs to them. The man in the temple, it was the unrighteous man who went away justified. Um, the blind man got his sight back. Jesus said, bring him to me and he, he healed him. And Zacchaeus was invited down and Jesus said, I'm coming to have I'm coming to your home, Zacchaeus. And so what Jesus does in his ministry, as far as Luke is concerned, is he, he breaks the powers, the social and spiritual, political, cultural powers, spatial powers that keep people on the outside. And there's something that happens around Jesus that enables people to come onto the inside. There's, if you like, there's a different kind of space at work. There's a different kind of arrangement, a different kind of power at work. And so what you find is that you find this amazing subversion of what is normal. You find a, a breaking down of what is normal and you find a shocking, an absolutely shocking inclusion. People, people come to Jesus, they come to the inside in ways that are culturally and socially unacceptable and difficult. So all kinds of things are going on in that story. <clears throat> But Jesus tells their stories uh, in the context of another story, which is the one that is right in the middle. And this is, uh, I think, the lovely way in which Luke constructs these stories. So you find there's these five outsiders, and then right in the middle, if you can have it in the middle of five, but anyway, right in the middle, there's uh, a longer story to match the Zacchaeus story, which is about a rich young ruler. And the, two, the rich young ruler and the Zacchaeus story are written as parallel stories. Their language resonates off each other. And this rich young ruler is the archetypal good man. He's the white man. Yeah, he is the pure man. He's, the, um, he's a man you want in your church. He isn't, he isn't a nasty man. You know, he's, he, is, he is a just man. <clears throat> he's, he is a, you know, he's a good man. And so... He's right at the heart of the story. And interestingly, he goes to Jesus. He doesn't find any problem coming to Jesus. He comes right into his presence, unlike all the others. Yet he's a powerful man. He has social and cultural power, just like all of us do. And he was able to be mobile. So he comes into Jesus' presence, and he can talk to Jesus. And he talks to him, and he says, what else do I need? And Jesus said, well, just go, go away and sell all you have, and then come and follow me. And he went away sad, because that's what he couldn't do. And so you see that with the... With the, with the white man, if you like, with, the, with this, with this uh, rich man, he was the one whose movement was from Jesus' presence away. Jesus didn't send him away, but it was, Jesus had a place, Jesus made a sense of place around him, which was very difficult for that man to stay in. He had to change if he was going to stay in it. And Luke, I think, very cleverly tells these stories in a way that says, that this place, that when you're with Jesus, this place works differently. Society is different. Culture changes when you're in Jesus' presence. The norms don't apply anymore. The kind of language of scum and dirt haven't got the same power and grip that they used to. Neither does the language of the white male, you know, the, clean, the clean person, the together person, doesn't find the same credibility through his, you know, his lifestyle and his belongings. <clears throat> I think, um, let me just conclude by saying, <clears throat> isn't it interesting that uh, as, as Luke tells these stories, what, what we find is that Jesus doesn't approach those who are on the margins of society and say, 
you know, come into meet this rich young ruler. Um, I'm going to ask him to give some of his money away, and you know, he'll give some to you, and your lifestyles can change, and you can become better people. Um, yeah, we're going to set up some food banks and some education facilities and those kinds of things, and, and we're going to change your culture so that you can become more like him. And I, I think that is absolutely radical. I think that what Luke is uh, saying here is unique, and you don't find many expressions of it in the way that um, our global aid and welfare operates. So Jesus doesn't go along to people who are excluded and say, come to the center of society, go, come to the sources of power. What Jesus does profoundly is he says, come and be with me. And Jesus sets up an alternative kind of, um, if you like, which is what this table represents. He, he sets up an alternative center. For Jesus, neither the margins nor the centers are the place to be. So it isn't trendy for Jesus to go to the margins. He doesn't set up a camp in the margins of society and say, look, if you really want to be kosher and authentic, this is where you need to be. You know, because that's the, the kind of proper place for a radical lefty guardian readers, <laughs> Christians to be. You know, he, he just doesn't do that. Neither does he go to the center and say, well, look, what we need to do is shift all these poor people into the place where they can be properly educated and have proper health care. The place to be is in Jesus' presence. And it's an alternative place. It's neither one end of the spectrum or the other. Jesus sets up a new place. When he is there, there's a new place around him. And all who come to him find that what they've been used to, the way that society treats them, whether it treats them well or badly, no longer applies. The rules have changed. The culture is different. Everything changes. And for some people, that means it's a profoundly uncomfortable place to be in. To be in Jesus' presence means great loss. For other people, it's a profound place to be in. It means a gain of great dignity. And that's what Miroslav Volf, I think, calls the place of embrace. That it is about, it's the, around Jesus, you find a whole cluster of people that it's very uncomfortable to be with. Um, and Jesus' call is, that, is to embrace those people, is to be and to be embraced by them. As he embraces us, we find that we also are called to embrace others. And so the practices of exclusion that we so often participate in are now converted into practices of acceptance and, and embrace. <clears throat> and that's what this table is about. And that's partly why I wanted to bring Nol West bread, because in some ways it's symbolic. You know, it's a people of difference. This bread has been pounded around, handmade by people... Who, one of whom um, was a, a police officer and was badly injured at a high-speed uh, car chase over 20 years ago. It hasn't worked since. Uh, his wife is, uh, she looks about um, 70. She's actually 52, 53. Uh, she's um, chronically ill, not, not because of, um, because she, she's ill, because she's a Nor'wester. Uh, and that's how she's been brought up. And, uh, yeah, and it's, so this bread has been made by them and a number of others. And it's this kind of sense of this table is Jesus' space. You know, this table is a space that we come to that none of us control, um, that, that none of us have a right over to say that this, only certain people can come here. Uh, this isn't a place that judges some people so they need to stay on the outside and others so they can come on the inside. This, this place is a place of radical inclusion. It's, it's a unique place, I think, in our, in our world where... Um, it's perhaps the only place where people of all difference 
um, anybody is welcome to come into Jesus uh, and his presence. Um, And so it should be a place that radically rearranges our ideas about how society works. It should be a place that radically challenges my own sense of prejudice and my own discomfort with being with certain kinds of people and heals me of that discomfort. Um, It should be a place that sparks an imagination in me when I come to partake in it, which is so living uh, and vibrant that it goes with me throughout the week. And so when I meet people of difference, the imagination of this table uh, determines how I am towards them. And so instead of being frightened and uh, and cautious and uh, keeping people at bay and distancing people so that I don't have to deal with their issues, it turns me into somebody who can imagine what an embrace might look like and would lead me then to explore that. So this table isn't just for this morning. This table is, um, is something that travels with us, as it were, you know, the imagination of it through our week and, uh, and challenges me about how I can constantly think about other people and, and, and if I'm too tired, I keep them away and I don't want to engage with them. That's what this table is about. And in, in that sense, it challenges the powers. It challenges people who use the language of scum and dirt, or use political um, policies to um, keep some poor and others wealthy. Uh, It challenges um, people at both ends of the social spectrum, you know, who are aggressive because they've been excluded and so they won't talk to those that they perceive as uh, powerful and excluding. So it it challenges the powers. It challenges our own sense of inner, what we carry with us, the way we stereotype other people. And it calls that into question. It says, is that right? Is that really, is that really right? And it invites us into Jesus' presence. And so I wanted to um, just invite us to share in a little liturgy in a moment. I think we're going to sing, uh, Jenny, before we do that, uh, which will pick up some of these things. Uh, it's a liturgy that comes from uh, a, a, an urban church in Manchester, called, and it's, they've written a, a book called Crumbs of Hope. And so I've taken it uh, from there, and it addresses some of these themes. And it talks about a fast-track urban urban world, and that there's a time to stop and to reflect, which is what we want to do this morning, and to step aside into this table and say, Lord, would you change us? Would you heal us? Would you meet us in fresh ways? Would you spark our imagination so that we might be those who become uh, Jesus' presence amongst others through the week? So let's sing, and then we'll break bread together. We have some liturgy, and I think we have four people. Uh, Is it four people? Three people. Voice one, voice two, and voice three. Those people know who they are? Yeah, great. Uh, Which we'll read through, and that will lead us on to um, saying some words together. Are they on the screen, Andy? Thank you. Uh, And then we will break bread and wine. So what we do is we go through the liturgy. The bread will be passed out. And if you could uh, hang on to your bread. Uh, and we'll eat it together, we'll say some words together, then we'll eat it together. Likewise, if you could uh, hang on to your wine, and Jenny will lead us in a bit of worship as we pass bread and wine out. Uh, Funding deadlines, meetings, collecting children from school, football practice, gymnastics, more meetings, and even the occasional meeting crowd in on us. We were obviously particularly tired this week when we wrote this, but in the end, there will be shalom. In our fast-track urban world, everything happens here and now. 
Advertised hoardings offer us the latest product with more and more functions that will perform ever faster and more efficiently. We live in an I want society where everything should have been done yesterday, where it is easier to take out a loan for £5,000 than it is to open a children's savings account, where the papers debate a looming pensions crisis because we are too busy living for today to think about providing for our future. Into this fast-track urban world, in danger of losing its soul to the hedonism of the moment, where we have no time to build community and barely know our next-door neighbours, God speaks a different wisdom, a language of being rather than doing, of patience rather than hurry of people rather than products, a wisdom of peace and non-violence, a language of walking the long journey of justice across the bounds of time and place, a grounded identity challenging our lifestyles of constant change. Into this fast-track urban world, Jesus embarks on his journey towards Jerusalem, traveling the highways of Israel-Palestine, his face set with determination to complete the journey, embarked on over three years before. Accompanied by those society sought to exclude, into this urban world marked by imperial status and power of grand architecture and unregulated markets, Jesus is carried on a donkey, an impromptu people's celebration where the wholeness of people's lives and relationships are singled out and celebrated as signs of shalom. Into this fast-track urban world, Jesus takes a simple loaf of bread, takes time to give thanks to the one who created it, breaks it, and shares it among them. This is my body. We can say this all together, shall we? This is my body, broken by your fast-track urban world, where a person's life is expendable in the race for money and power. Into this fast-track urban world, Jesus takes a, a cup of celebratory wine, takes time to lift it and savours it and shares it amongst them. This is my blood spilt by the violence of broken relationships, given that you might learn to live together in restored community. Into this fast-track urban world, we pause to give thanks, to stop and reflect on the stories of God's people, on the stories that both shape our world and challenge us to think again. We pause to take, eat, and savour the bread and confess our caught-upness in the whirlwind of the world. We pause to take, drink, and savour the wine and to look again at the faces of the people around us, the community of which we are a part, and to commit, commit again to walk together in your shalom. 
So we pass the bread around. Uh, do take a big piece. There's a lot here. Uh, and as we do that, Jenny will lead us in song. I think there's some people going to... This bread, we have some words to say together. They're the words, uh, Andy, where it says, um, You, Lord, Lord, are the bread of life. Okay. You, Lord, are the bread of life. Let this bread be life-giving. Let this bread be a means of growth. Let this bread be for our strengthening, that receiving this bread, we may be one with you. Similarly, we share the wine together, so do hold on to the wine. So we say words together as we share the wine. You, Lord, are the true vine. Let this wine be for refreshment. Let this wine be for renewal. Let this wine be for joy, that receiving this wine, we may be one with you. Here in this place with Jesus, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, Indian or Brit or Romanian. Hallelujah. We find ourselves in your embrace, Lord God, and we praise you. Your welcome has made us real men and women. Thank you, God. Your acceptance, Lord, enables us to stand up straight, humbled, but with dignity. Hallelujah. Make us expressions of this same worship, Lord, this same acceptance, this same Dignity, make us expressions of it in the world during the week. If I may ask you a question, which you don't answer me, um, here, met round this table, we meet with Jesus. I think what Mike, has, you've said, has been awesome. Thank you. Very challenging. The place to be is with Jesus. The place you are going to be tomorrow, well, you know what that place is going to be like. But Jesus says he goes with you. How much will that place be transformed? Because you are in this place with Jesus. Are you Zacchaeus? in response or are you a rich young ruler in response and you may ask me the same question we should pray for one another more than we do in the workplace Elsa is starting a new job soon we should pray for her and Avigas already has a very uh, well Google her and see how much stuff she does. Soon she's also going to be adding to it. Um, she's going to be acting as a judge in Manchester. She's nervous. P 
Pete is going for an interview for a part-time job with Muller's tomorrow week. You have board meetings, staff meetings, children's meetings, mothers' get-togethers, <laughs> postnatal groups. Heavenly Father, we just pray for one another, for the ones we've mentioned by name in their work, that you will bless them in the new work, in the new responsibilities, in the seeking of new places. We pray that you'll bless them, Lord, not just for their own good, but bless them in such a way that they become expressions of the kingdom in these hard places of the world where Jesus is found through them. And we pray for each one of us, Lord God, to you'll send us out from this place, but not absent from Jesus. As Mike said, grant to us to take this event with us, in Jesus' name. Amen.